You know, I wonder if we had only known what this past year and a half would have been, I wonder what we might have done differently. But every time I think of that question, I'm reminded of the words of that great American dialectic philosopher, Mike Tyson, who was once asked after a fight what his plan was going in on it. To which Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so in thinking about this, this year has been quite a punch in the face. Now I tried to think of something nice to say about 5781, and I realized that I've had some bad years in my life. You have too. But knowing and seeing people living their regular lives somehow helped me believe that things would pass. But this year we kept saying that it couldn't get worse, and yet it did. Now we may be vaccinated, otherwise you wouldn't be here, but the fingerprints of this year will be following us because it's hard to imagine in the future smelling hand gel or vinyl gloves or masks and not flinching. It's what humans do. We carry these things with us. Now, a hundred years ago, two power powerful events collided with humanity. The first was the First World War that laid waste to most of Europe, left for dead more than 200 million, excuse me, more than 20 million dead. And then as peace settled and ships and trains and cars moved millions around the world back to their homes, the Spanish flu broke out. So if you survived the war, you stumbled into a plague that in the end would kill two and a half times the casualties from the war itself. Now ours is a world of seven billion people, but a hundred years ago, the population of the world was one and a half billion. Between the war and the pandemic, 5% of the world's population was wiped out in just four years or scaled up to our time. In a succession of four infectious waves over two years, that would be one and a quarter billion people infected and 350 million dead. And in looking at the history, I don't think it's a huge leap to see that the Roaring Twenties, a decade of white-collar crime and gang warfare, liquor and drug trafficking, rampant prostitution and broken families, I don't think it's hard to say that it's connected to the war and the pandemic. It's almost as if those who survived it were unsure to believe that anything could last and that death was always around the corner. And so their answer was to drink and connive and steal. But eventually that collapsed. The stock market crash of 1929 called in a decade's bill, but there was nothing left to pay it with. And why the history lesson? Because unlike Fujiyama, while history doesn't repeat itself, there are questions that humans face repeatedly over and over again, generation after generation. And I want to tell you one of those questions. In 1942, the Nazis invaded Transylvania, and the Jews of a town named Nagi Karoli were sent to the cattle cars. A few of them broke ranks and slipped away, not believing that they were being shipped off to family farming communities to wait out the war. One of them was a man named Zoltan Klein. He ran into the forest and he dug a hole. That hole was four feet deep, six feet long, eight feet wide, not high enough to stand, 
barely deep enough to crouch, but long enough to lie in. Two other men shared the hole with Zoltan, and while there was daylight, they played chess. At night, the three men slipped through an opening in the side of the hole. They went foraging, leaves for smoking, pine cones for chewing, water from a nearby stream. Sometimes an old Christian forest dweller would bring them raw potatoes. When they heard the war was over, they crawled out of the hole and walked into the town and saw clear as day that the Jews were all gone. Families and friends and neighbors were wiped out. And unsure of where to go, they stayed in the town. They supported themselves by rummaging through abandoned homes. They drank all night and slept all day. They caroused, they stole, and they gambled. And this went on for over a month until Zoltan said to himself, I have to get out of here. Otherwise, he knew his life would be over. The next morning, he packed and jumped on a train to Greece and took a boat that would bring him to America. I once asked his son, what happened to the men who stayed behind? His father wrote them letters, but he never heard from them again. Since they never left, they never left it. I remember reading years ago that when astronauts return from outer space, after long missions, that their eyeballs are actually flat. Their legs are brittle, their faces are puffy, their tongues feel heavy. When some astronauts return to Earth, most notably, Apollo 11 crew member Buzz Aldrin, getting back to normal life was painful. Aldrin went through a string of wives, alcoholism, depression, before dragging himself back to life. We know people who experience long periods of isolation, members of polar expeditions, prisoners, that their return to society is filled with anxiety and also depression, because when things change, we change. I found myself asking myself this past year how I want to get back to my normal life, to the way we did things before, to the way I came and went, what I did and how I lived. But now on the cusp of some kind of return, I don't know if we can go back to the way that it was, and perhaps more importantly, I don't know if we should want to. If you've taken the chance to look these past 18 months, you know that it has shown how utterly fragile we are. We've also been shown that the things that we rely on are just as fragile, that science and technology and wealth are not gods but tools, and the perfect ones at that. A vaccine, for one thing, is superseded by a natural variation of the very same thing, and the cycle carries on and on again. And for thousands of years, human wisdom looked to teach us, to some degree, that we are controlled by the world that we live in, and to learn how to be stoic and humble in the face of inevitable suffering. But to be a child of the 20th and the 21st century is to be born believing that science and technology control nature. It is to believe that we are the controllers to the point where we tell ourselves that we are so powerful and we are so controlling that we stand on the cusp of destroying nature itself. But the honest truth is very distant from this. We understand very little and we control even less. We are expert in few fields and in very limited ways. We will not destroy nature, but nature can indeed destroy us.
surveying and thinking over these past 18 months, it's easy to see that what we have been raised to believe is not what we need to believe. You know, people used to think about this big conflated tension between religion and science, as if you could only believe one or the other, as if religion, which asks us to look at the stars in the sky, would not in some way inspire people to want to understand it deeper, and that science, filled with cold facts and theorem, couldn't create on people as it peeled away layer upon layer of the world that we see but didn't understand. So in truth, there is no tension between religion and science. They do different but complementary things. But in our time, the real tension is between faith and commerce, between religion and retail. They both have something to say about what makes for a life and they have nothing in common with each other. In a consumer economy, you only matter if you buy something. And the more you buy, the more you matter. So the entire engine of commerce is to get you to believe that you become something and someone when you consume things. And the more you consume, the more they tell us, the more that we are. Because everyone wants to be someone. And it has to be something new because old can't be bought again. On the other side, religion teaches it's not having, but being. It asks you to use the crowdsourced wisdom of the past to understand what your soul is asking you. It never questions if you are someone because it knows that you already are. It never questions what the value of you is because it knows that you have value. It never asks you to go out and get something. It only asks if you're ready to be more than what you are now. And so as we will, God willing, crawl out of our holes this year, what will you choose to hold on to? Your phone or your faith? This past summer, I grabbed a new book on Jewish history by an Israeli historian. It's a bestseller in Israel, which says as much about the book as it does about Israel. Through the course of 694 pages, the historian offers a sweeping perspective with the gift of a storyteller. It is a beautiful read. The broad strokes are this. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and dies on the cusp of the promised land. Joshua takes over and leads the people into it, conquering the territory and establishing a nation. Over the next centuries, the nation functions like independent provinces. Judah, Benjamin, Dan, Ruvain, all 12 tribes, and they each function like their own little country. There's no central authority, and it doesn't work well at all, especially when it comes to confronting their enemies, the Canaanites and the Philistines. Because you need someone to take charge, and finally a king is chosen. His name is Saul, and his story ends tragically in great failure. But rather than abandon the idea of a king altogether in the wake of the failure, a second king is chosen. And his name is David. And his story is majestic. So I want to share a secret with you. You see, the secret to understanding the Torah is that God is modeling, showing us the essential skill to human life. Think about it. Adam and Eve are placed in and then thrown out of the garden. And they begin again. 
Humans are on earth and fail. There is a flood and it begins again. Humans build the Tower of Babel and fail. So it begins again with Abraham. The people fail after leaving Egypt and they begin again. The Torah and Judaism is a record of massive human failure and the massive belief that we can begin again. It is to say that the strength of life is to be seen not in our first step, but in our second. It is to be faced down by life and must have the courage to do it again. It is the idea that we can learn from our past and achieve in the same space where we stumbled last. Not to forget the past, but to learn from it. It is for that reason, I suspect, that the name for this holy day is Rosh Hashanah. Because the word Shana not only means ancient, not only means year, but in its most ancient form, the word Shana means to learn and repeat. Because life is built upon not what you have, but on what you have learned. Saying that the most human and faithful and soulful moments of your life is where there is a chance to begin again. And it is there that we find ourselves in the words of Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed. No matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. When this all ends, and it will, the masks will be put away for good, and the hand gel and booster shots too. When all this ends, history will ask not how we were forced to live differently, how we adjusted and compensated with things were changed and taken away. But the better history will ask, when given the chance that we see enough of the wrong to change for the better. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's a famous series of photos from Key West, Florida, which shows groups of sport fishermen proudly displaying their catches. In the pictures from the 1950s, the fish are enormous, giant groupers that are taller than a person. Through the 1960s and 70s, the groupers get smaller. In the 1980s, there are no more groupers left at all. The fish now are snappers. And by the 2000s, the fish in the pictures are only a foot long. But what does say the same is the smile on the faces of the people in the pictures because they don't realize what changed and they don't know what they've lost. And that's the world that we have been drenched in for over a century. A world that told us not to look back, but always to look ahead to what tomorrow will be. Telling us that the past is a waste, but the future is shimmering and promising. We changed, and all the while we never stopped to look at what we've lost. But this year, as we celebrate a holy day with thanks and gratitude with family around us, give yourself the chance to look back and see what was wrong, where we were mistaken and misled, and now, blessed with time, how you can do it all for a second time. And this time, so much better. Shana Tova, everyone.